and welcome to Technically Speaking, where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura, and in this episode I'm joined by Antonia and Jasmine to talk about importing wood for electricity production to the UK, and whether it's really sustainable. So Antonia, you're a consultant in the energy industry, so I guess you must know something about this? Yeah, so something that came up a lot was um, the documentary that BBC Panorama recently released on Drax, the the biggest biomass power plant in the UK. There were some interesting points raised, and I thought it would make a great discussion for the podcast. Yes, I saw that documentary as well, and I have many questions about the information that was presented. Yeah. Jasmine, your background's a little bit different to Antonia's, but I think it's very relevant to some of the information presented in the documentary. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, so I did my PhD in life cycle sustainability. So a lot of it involved conducting life cycle assessments so looking at the emissions across the various stages of the product or a service. A lot of my research is also in the energy sector, so I know a little bit about biomass. So one of the first questions I had about this, so when we're talking about biomass, we're talking about it was importing wood chips that Drax have produced in Canada. And the documentary kind of opened with this statement of burning wood has higher greenhouse gas emissions than burning coal to produce electricity. But they just sort of stated that and didn't seem to provide any evidence for it. So is that true? Yeah, so technically, if you consider all carbon, then yes, it is. When you see figures for greenhouse gas emissions for different electricity and energy sources, what CO2 particularly is is accounted for, and that is fossil or or anthropogenic CO2. So any biogenic CO2, so that would be any CO2 produced from burning any biological materials like wood or plants, that's not counted towards the carbon footprint because it's part of the natural carbon cycle. So in theory, the carbon stored in the trees and the plants, it will get released into the atmosphere and then reabsorbed when new plants grow, because all the combustion CO2 isn't accounted for. That's why when you look at figures comparing different energy sources, biomass is quite low, especially in comparison with coal. But when you do consider the biogenic CO2, it's actually uh, similar to coal, if not a bit higher, because wood chips as a fuel has similar, if not a bit lower quality than coal in terms of like calorie value. So it will produce similar amounts of CO2 when combusted. Right. So I guess when you're talking about factoring the carbon cycle into that calculation, are you kind of assuming that something will regrow somewhere to absorb the CO2 that's been emitted from burning the wood or the biomass? Yeah, that's one of the big assumptions with biomass and bioenergy systems in general, is that the carbon that you do release when you use the fuel, it gets reabsorbed when new plants grow. Right, so does that kind of assume that if you're taking the wood from a forest that is managed somehow, you're expecting that forest to be regrown? Yes. Cool. Is is that usually the case when you're cutting down forests to turn into wood chip to burn in a power station? If it's managed and done in a sustainable way, then yes, because the area that is cut down should be regenerated after a few years. So after you've cut down the trees, it will then be like regenerated, so new trees will be planted there. Yeah, and you would think that would make business sense. Yeah. Because I think in the documentary they said that Drax bought these forests in Canada for the sole purpose of cutting the trees down to turn it into wood chip to ship to the UK. 
So you'd think it wouldn't make business sense for them to then not regrow anything. Yeah, exactly. But like, uh, don't work with drags, don't really know how that, about their business plans, so I can't really comment on that. Of course, of course. Antonia, did you have any thoughts on that very bold statement that wasn't qualified in any way in the documentary? Yeah, they did touch on it a bit, actually, was how sort of government figures for different electricity sources, they do say that biomass is lower And that's kind of, I guess, a point of contention is that we are excluding biogenic carbon. So if we base our national plans to reach um, net zero, which is, you know, limiting global warming temperatures by 1.5 degrees C, then, you know, we're kind of going on a basis that might not be true. And, you know, when we consider if we rapidly decide to change everything to biomass, we'd kind of burn way more carbon than we think we are so yeah knowing what kind of wood we've got and where it's coming from will be really important yeah I don't know if we are always um, replanting because if you think about the rate of deforestation it is still higher than we are replanting so how can we be sure I guess it's down to proper management and you know someone going to verify it yeah, I'd have to agree. So with the example of Drax, they were uh, cutting down trees in Canada. So for that particular example, it will be up to the Canadian government to manage that because the UK government, we don't really have that much power to be like, hey, Canada, you can't do this. Plus, Canada has way more land. Yeah. The population density is so different from the UK that they probably don't miss the forest as much as the UK does. <laughs> Yeah, but it could also just be that because Canada is such a big place with lots of forests, like maybe it's something to do with just like more of a local regulation thing rather than like federal because it is more difficult because Canada is just so big. Like federal regulations don't necessarily always work just because there's just more holes or or like places for things to like go unnoticed just because the country is so massive and the population density is quite low, especially in the rural areas where you do have a lot of big forests. So it could be a question of like, how do you manage responsible forestry management or responsible cutting down of trees for either for energy or for like wood products like furniture? Yeah, and there was something else they kept saying in the documentary that sort of builds on this point. They said several times that the land that Drax was logging met the UN definition of primary forest. Given that you said that Canada is so big, and there's probably a lot of forest that's been there for a long time. I suspect an awful lot of forest in Canada would probably meet that definition, which apparently is naturally regenerated forest of native species, where there are no clearly visible indications of human activities, and the ecological processes are not significantly disturbed, which kind of suggests that maybe a human might have wandered through the forest occasionally, maybe cut down the odd tree, or maybe picked some plants, and that was pretty much it but that forest has been around for quite a long time. It's interesting because I wasn't really sure what the meaning of primary forest was from the documentary, but it seemed to be a key point that we shouldn't be cutting down trees from a primary forest. And I guess from a biodiversity point of view, maybe that's really important because it's kind of maintaining what was naturally there. But if you have an abundance of it, I can see why, you know, the Canadian government might actually go, okay, Let's give some people logging licences for it. Say they're only taking sort of 1% of the total national coverage of trees. Yeah. But then 
that ecologist they had on there kept talking about ancient forest. Yeah, I noticed that too. The way the ecologist was presented in the entire documentary, I did wonder what she thought about it, because I imagine she had a lot to say about ecology, and none of that dialogue made it into the documentary. All she, all, all, the only line she had was pretty much, this is a terrible thing that's happening. <laughs> She must have had something to say about the wildlife. Yeah, I wonder how long the original conversation was for her to kind of almost get cut down to a few sound bites. Yeah, and strangely, there doesn't seem to be consensus on what ancient forest or woodland is. There isn't a strict definition of it. According to ancientforest.org, it looks like there are different definitions in Canada, and it depends on which tree species. Okay. So you can look at the UN definition all you want, but you don't have to have it written down that you will stick with that definition. Mm. There's a very interesting point that it looked like a lot of these definitions were reverse engineered to match the damaged remnants of forests that people saw looking around them. So it's kind of like whatever's left, that's what we're calling ancient, the stuff that looks like it's been around for a while. So, yeah, maybe as far as the Canadian government is concerned, we've got a lot of trees, and we've always had a lot of trees, and as long as we don't remove too many of them, and we'll set a limit on that, then maybe that's fine. To add to that was would be that, obviously, like, Canadian government are aware that they do have, like, a really rich resource in their trees that is valuable both from an ecological and environmental perspective, but also from, like, a monetary perspective, because obviously you can sell the trees for products. To be able to like cut down trees from what could be defined as a primary forest, I would assume that the Canadian government would have gone through some kind of process of determining like, okay, which areas would we allow to be logged and which areas are strictly off limits because not only are the trees like valuable from an ecological perspective, but like they're also an important carbon sink in that they do remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But having said that, like the rate of carbon dioxide removal for trees does slow down as they get older. So to like basically make the carbon sink bigger, it does make sense to like cut down older trees and then plant new trees just because the level of CO2 removal would then go up because it does plateau after about 100 years for uh, hardwood trees. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard this as well. It makes me feel we've got some big trees in our garden and we have cut a few back for various reasons. One of them was overshadowing an apple tree. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather be able to pick my own apples and have this tree that didn't seem to do much else. But knowing that tree will regrow and the tree underneath it will also grow more vigorously did make me feel a bit better. That's like a perfect example of why would you keep an older tree just because it's old if you have an apple tree, which is productive and provide you with something you want yeah but then again what i disliked about cutting down the tree was that a lot of the birds in our garden like sitting in it oh so it was interesting to watch how they reacted to suddenly there's this tree gone there are two other trees we can use but we liked that one. <laughs> oh, i hope it wasn't too disruptive but i guess that's the point of why why deforestation is such a problem on a global scale, not just on uh, Laura's garden scale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I imagine that is the point that the ecologist that was interviewed made in the interview that didn't make it into the documentary, mm. was that it does disrupt the wildlife and they have to adapt somehow and how much habitat is lost as a result. Yeah, absolutely. So like any kind of deforestation within like an area like that will have an impact because you're basically removing like habitats that animals would have used for homes or for like feeding, but 
depending on how big the area impacted is, like the animals will be able to adapt. It's just whether or not like you're just cutting down a really big area and then whether or not it's just like one big area or whether or not you're making, you're then fragmenting the forest. That can be quite bad. Mm. I don't think any of that was covered in the Panorama documentary. So it'd be interesting to like see like an aerial image of the forest that's been cut down to see whether or not it's actually like still relatively very green or if it's like, You've got like bits of like mosaic, bits of like areas that have been cut down. The point that I think Drax made against some of the allegations that were made by the documentary was that they particularly use waste wood and also some of their activities in the forest actually help the forest be healthier, such as removing diseased trees or thinning the forest so that trees have a bit more space to grow. But then I think there was satellite imagery which sort of showed a a whole area getting cut, but, you know, it wasn't stated, was that maybe an area that was full of diseased trees, so that was why they all had to get cut, because then it wouldn't be doing the, you know, it wasn't thinning, as they kind of suggest. Yeah, there's a lot of, there was a lot of sort of points made, and then it just left more questions, but I feel like they were trying to push a certain point, you know? I'm a trained scientist, same as Jasmine from the sign of it with her PhD. So I'm trained to sort of ask, well, where's your evidence? Does that evidence make sense to me? Is there any evidence against it? What's the balance there? Uh, that also, like, because the Panorama episode, it's only restricted to, like, a certain length. Like, they can only fit in so much of, like, the content that they would have originally have scripted down, as well as, like, obviously interviews they've done with people. Mm. So, like, the ecologist who's interviewed got cut really short and probably interviews with potentially other scientists or people with different opinions on the whole situation. It did seem a bit of a shame that it's almost like they already knew what they wanted the outcome to be and they were picking the information that matched that outcome, but... Maybe they took all the evidence they had and just presented the bits that made the clearest point that they'd seen from that evidence. It's difficult to judge without seeing the rest of the um, the data they collected. Yeah, like I think something that was highlighted in the draft documentary was that, like Antonia said, the wood chips are supposed to be from wood of like lower quality wood so i'm from like diseased trees or wood that's not high enough quality to be used in wood furniture but then it turned out that they were using the good quality wood for wood chips but then i can see the argument that is it might be good quality but maybe it wasn't in demand because ultimately it's it's a bit of a market isn't it and to have such a quantity is also a problem if you let it get wet then it's not the same quality anymore so how do you store all of it? And I guess maybe they, you know, that was why, even though it was good quality, they couldn't find a buyer for it. So it could only go to making wood chips, which at least it has a use. Again, you know, the documentary kind of touched on it with some hard evidence of looking through the delivery notes and saying, you know, uh, was it 11% of the logs from that particular place were graded as too poor quality for timber? But then, yeah, we'd have to also understand the the market and supply and demand situation at the same time to know, was that just because, you know, say no one was building houses, so there was no demand. But then I guess you'd have to question their choice to cut an entire forest down if only 11% of it was deemed as waste. Did they just say, well, we have no choice, we need to make money off this, so we're going to have to turn it into wood chip? Mm. Or we've just made a really bad business decision? Or was there more to it than that? I feel like I'm just putting words in Jax's spokesperson's mouth there and I probably shouldn't be doing that. 
you know, in the lack of our knowledge, all we can do is sort of speculate what what possibly could be happening. I guess we're trying to be like generous to both sides of this. We don't want badly presented evidence, but also someone probably worked really hard on it. So it just might not have made the cut. Which I always think is a bit sad if there was some really interesting evidence there, but it just wasn't exciting enough for a documentary. That's the point of a documentary, isn't it? To present the evidence, not to be exciting. I have heard some people argue that the latest series or decades of panorama aren't as robust as they used to be. I remember when they used to be super niche and you'd barely understand any of it. They would put them on during like science classes and you'd just be like, I have no idea. They're talking about like, I don't know, background microwave radiation in the galaxy or the universe. And you just kind of like, I, I don't understand. I'm I'm not even doing GCSE science yet. I don't know what a microwave is, apart from the one in my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> now maybe they're trying to reach a broader audience. So it is kind of trying to make it into more of a story rather than um, we've got some really specific science for you here. Storytelling is part of how you get someone interested in the subject. It's kind of what I do for a lot of my job as a freelance science communicator. But there's also presenting the evidence accurately. And if the evidence tells you there isn't an interesting story to tell, you just don't tell it. Sometimes you've got to report the negatives, haven't you? Say, we did look at this and actually, you know what? It's all above board. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) I thought you were going to say scientists don't report when they get a negative result. Such happens a lot in academia. You can only report when an experiment is successful. Yeah, it's like no one writes papers about how I tried this and it didn't do what I thought. But I feel like it's a very valid result. You wouldn't do the experiment if you knew exactly what was going to happen. Sometimes saying it didn't work, but it just totally proved how not to do something. It's very useful. Yeah. Well, actually, maybe I shouldn't comment because I'm not, I've not been in academia for as long as you two. It was just from the evidence of like, okay, this is anecdotal evidence. So that's my problem. I will stop here. (laughs) There is room for that too in academia. But one thing the documentary did make me wonder, because we were talking about importing wood from Canada. And on the face of it, that kind of seems like craziness. You either wouldn't burn biomass in the UK to produce electricity, or you just use homegrown wood. Which made me wonder, what percentage of the UK's electricity does biomass produce? And where else could the wood come from? So in the UK's electric mix, biomass is the biggest uh, source out of the renewable electricity options. If you combine both onshore and offshore wind, I believe the amount of electricity would be similar to what is produced from biomass. So it's an important source of electricity in the UK. But in terms of the wood sourcing, uh, it's a bit tricky to find exact details of where all the wood chips come from. The majority of it is imported because the amount of wood that you need to burn in a biomass power plant, uh, we just don't produce enough wood, all these wood chips in the UK, especially the kind of wood that you would need to burn in the power plants like Drax. No, I mean, I guess if you look around any rural area, It is mostly fields. There isn't a lot of woodland there. And if you think about where the really big woodlands are in the UK, like they're primarily in like national parks. Uh, There's one near me in Ennerdale, um, which is in the Lake District. They were logging that very recently. Mm. I think they they do that periodically and doing it for a while. It's it's also, from the sounds of it, quite well managed because this Wild Ennerdale project, which is about increasing the biodiversity and making sure that things are done as sustainably as possible without, as sustainably obviously including not 
negatively affecting the people that live in the valley. Yeah. Hmm. But where that goes and what they do with it, I'm not entirely sure. I would quite like to know. I know there's a paper mill near us, and the, the port near us does ship wood in and out quite a lot. Mm. But this is why I'm so interested in this, I think, because I see these activities happening and I don't get a full picture. Maybe you can try asking them next time. Be like, hey, excuse me, why are you sending all the, why are you sending all the trees to? <laughs> Stop one of the lorry drivers. <laughs> I don't really know. I just drive huh. this thing. <laughs> but are you going to plant some more in its place as well? Um, I believe that is the plan. Again, I don't know if the driver would know that. <laughs> From the information I've seen from the project, yeah, the plan is to increase diversity of trees in that valley and have more native broadleaf species, which will be interesting to see because I cycled through it the other week and it did look a little bit sad with these sort of bare areas um, when you were used to sort of being completely enclosed by trees. Mm. So I guess I'll I'll see what happens in the, the next few years or how long does it take for trees to grow if they're native broadleaves? Depends on what size you want to get to, but like... 10 plus years from like sapling to like a decent sized tree. So in my lifetime, easily, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Jasmine, you were talking about the renewables mix of UK electricity production. Yeah. What are you defining as renewables? Basically non-fossil fuel. (laughs) Technically nuclear, it can be classed as a renewable because in theory, like the amount of uranium and other materials that we have uh, because you don't need that bigger quantity. Like in theory, we just have we have a lot to like last us for a long time. But because it is a finite resource, it's technically not renewable. So I would have to like count renewable as like solar, wind, biomass because it can regenerate tidal. So when you said that biomass was comparable to total production from wind, which I guess is taken as an average across some time frame. Do you know roughly what proportion that is also like 8% of the UK's electricity generation? So in most of the government stats, they tend to combine wind and solar together, but I think it's it's between 10 and 20%. I think it's similar to what nuclear is, if not a bit higher nowadays. They either combine wind and solar together, because solar is like a really small percentage, or they have everything separated out. Okay, so would you say that the burning of biomass, which is not necessarily just wood pellets, but you also said other organic forms that produce electricity? When you think about a biomass power plant, you're burning solid fuels. So that could be wood chips, it can also be miscanthus pellets or other similar types of solid fuels from that from that family. The other type of biomass power plant that you could have, or a bioenergy power plant, I should say, would be like if you're burning biomethane or biogas in the CHP unit, but they tend to be like much smaller in capacity in comparison with like the big biomass power plants. CHP is combined heat and power, right? Yeah, combined heat and power, yeah. Okay. I feel like this is getting very confusing. <laughs> there are too many things and too many definitions. What I was wondering is if the UK is importing wood chips to burn in power stations to generate electricity, is that going to make a significant difference to the UK if we stopped doing that? If we look at power plants like Drac, so if we were to stop importing wood chips, and it would have an impact just because the big biomass power plants, they are used to meet what's known as base load, which is... Uh, when you look at graphs of electricity demand and consumption throughout the day, you'll see that it like kind of like ha- it has peaks and troughs. So peak would be when everyone is using energy. So in the mornings and evenings when you're like getting ready for having breakfast, getting ready to go go to work or go to school, and then in, that's in the mornings. And then in the evenings, like when you're at home, you're having dinner, you're watching TV with your family. 
and then like the low point that's called the base load so that's like the energy you need for like your fridge like lights in office buildings or in shops for security so like power plants like trucks or like any most really big thermal power plants including nuclear they are really important for meeting base load demand so if you were to remove like a really big biomass power plant like Drax, but from stopping importing wood chips, it would have an impact on whether or not we could meet baseload demand. I think I kind of touched on baseload in the episode about frequency of um, the electricity grid. Yeah, it's really interesting. All the power plants are in sync with each other. They're like dancing with one another. I wish I had come up with that analogy. Instead, I was using like synchronous. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it more like they're all like dancing and like spinning in the same direction at the same time. So we're all like going around in, like mm. a like group of dancers going around in a circle. Yeah. So it kind of sounds like burning this wood that's imported is quite useful, but we don't have a local replacement for it. Yeah, it would be really tricky. Well, if we focus entirely on like the Canadian imports, and that would be. Is it like 20% of Drax wood chips are imported from Canada or is it less? I can't remember, remember, but it's a significant fraction of the wood chips that they import, but it's not like the majority. So if you were to stop importing from like one country, it wouldn't have like a detrimental impact on whether or not the power plant could operate. It would be worse if the UK were to just like stop importing wood chips from any country full stop, because then there would be like very little fuel and then all the biomass power plants, they wouldn't be able to operate. And it would also make generating electricity from biomass much more expensive just because there is much less fuel. It does make me wonder then, why did the documentary choose to focus on Canada and why not one of the other importers? Because you said... Drax imports wood from elsewhere, but maybe doesn't yeah. log it there themselves. Like, we can speculate on many reasons why they chose to focus on Canada. Like, we don't know exactly where Drax gets all of their wood chips from, but looking at stats on UK wood chip imports, a majority of it does come from outside the EU. Ah, so potentially travelling quite a long way. Yeah, I think Canada and the USA are one of the other two bigger markets for wood wood and wood chip imports to the UK. So does that make a difference to carbon emissions in the calculations? Because intuitively, the further you transport it, the more the carbon emissions would increase. Yeah, so if you are importing your wood from further away, then it would make an impact. So the wood would get transported by big shipping containers. And I suppose most um, shipping is fueled by heavy fuel oil or diesel, so... They already have a high carbon content. Yeah, they do. But it depends. A lot of emissions from uh, shipping, it will depend on the distance, but also depends on like how much load the ship is carrying. So if they're carrying like lots of cargo then per ton or per kilogram of goods being transported, the emissions can be lower than other methods of, tran- of transporting. Yeah. But in general... For like the wood chips, if you were to consider like all the CO2 emissions, so including the biogenic, the emissions from burning the wood would be much bigger than the emissions from transporting it. So it almost doesn't matter where we get it from, really, because it's just 
ultimately that fuel is very carbon intensive. If you're including those emissions in the calculation, because what you were saying right at the start was they don't include them. Yeah, because we assumed it's from a managed forest, which is a renewable source as opposed to a forest that doesn't grow back. Yeah. So I guess this all comes down to how Jax manages the land that they've bought. Mm. Did you guys think that what Drax was doing made sense from a technical point of view? As in, the emissions are fairly low and they're not necessarily doing a lot of harm to the environment because you assume that the land is managed appropriately. Well, I know that Drax do have a bunch of scientists who do research on things like that. Bio-NG in like realm of sustainability is kind of one of those issues where you're either really, really for it or you're kind of like, well, there's still some gaps in it. <laughs> so like Drax are like investing in science and research to just make sure that what they are doing is done in like a responsible manner. So looking at how to improve their modeling of biogenic carbon emissions, uh, as well as like other areas of their business portfolio. The IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is, you know, a huge collection of scientists internationally and researchers about climate change, did, you know, model scenarios about how could the whole world power themselves and also meet climate change targets? And they, you know, they they kind of said biomass has a limited role. You know, some will be useful, but we can't totally rely on it to meet climate change targets. And I think that's where I sit, I suppose, is, is we kind of need some baseload electricity and biomass from a responsible managed forest is better than coal. Is coal the only option? There's then natural gas or biogas to kind of fill that gap. So we kind of are still relying on some sort of thermal power plant or nuclear, of course, which is the other massive thermal power plant. All these things that produce steam or hot gas that turns a turbine. That's how we've been doing it for quite a long time now. Yeah. So from the idea that it was a huge power plant anyway, so there were the facilities, you know, all the people and skills to manage that kind of plan, you know, it's good to be able to use that and convert it into something that is for the future. And, you know, people can complain about, you know, oil and gas companies, you know, they're still doing what they're doing. But I guess if you were working in that company, you kind of wouldn't want them to just stop. You'd kind of want them to adapt and continue and look ahead from a skills point of view. You kind of want to keep people with those useful skills and maybe just transfer them to another technology. Yeah, which I guess is part of doing things sustainably. It's making sure people still have jobs. Yeah. I've got to say, though, if you ever walk through land that has recently been logged, it's not necessarily strict deforestation, because apparently that's cutting down trees to change the use of the land. Whereas I think this would technically be defined as... Forest degradation is what it's technically defined as. Thinning of the canopy or a reduction in the density of trees in the area. Ah, the land use won't change and it is temporary and the trees will re- regrow. So it's not necessarily deforestation, but seeing forest degradation does look really sad. It's like this huge hand just came down and swiped all these trees and left just this mess of sticks and mud. Yeah. And it's just really sad to see. I think I'm really influenced by stuff that I grew up with as a child, like the animals of Farthingwood. 
I distinctly remember reading that book that was all about humans coming in to build houses and destroying this habitat that was mostly trees. And all the animals in the wood ha- decided to band together and relocate. Oh, if only they could in real life. And it, it was just kind of weird, like, oh, nature's really terrible. But there's a snake and a fox and some like small mammals have all come together that would normally eat each other. They've banded together to save their ecosystem. And I guess that's kind of what we have to do, isn't it? Try and find a way to coexist. And I guess the first thing is knowing what's there to begin with. If you did decide to log a load of trees from an area, what effect is that going to have? What's there already? Are you disturbing some bats or some rare birds or something? Especially because also, what if it's not actually ecologically unique? I don't know if that, (laughs) that counts for anything. Yeah, it's not ecologically significant, then someone could argue... There's a lot more to gain. Hate to say it. <laughs> Good job Ellie's not on today's episode. The, the zoologist with the love of all things natural. I'm sort of similar to Ellie. I hate to see it happen, but it's one of those things that where we're at, you can't really have modern life as it is and not have some effect to the natural environment. It's more about managing it in a way that minimises whatever effect you might have. One of my international friends said when they came to study in the UK, over there, environmental science and environmental management was all about fixing some ecological disaster, something bad that happened. Whereas over here, we're talking more about sustainability and sort of preventing it from happening. So I feel like in some ways, you know, as engineers, we're trying to do better And, you know, sort of go back to the principles of you shouldn't have done this in the first place rather than (laughs) learning how to fix it. But just let's try and prevent this. I guess that's sort of summed up as learning from the mistakes of the past so you don't repeat them. That sounds like it should be a line from a film. I might be mixing several films up there. It's a bit sort of Spider-Man-esque. With great power comes great responsibility. Literally, greater power demand comes greater responsibility. Yeah, Drax, take a leaf out of Spider-Man's book. It sounds like you are. Keep doing it. <laughs> I think that's probably a good place to leave it. Leaf it. Oh dear, that definitely is. All right. Having started off with kind of saying this panorama documentary really got us thinking about how land is managed and what we're actually doing with our electricity generation and where the fuel for that comes from. It seems like it's probably okay to keep importing biomass, at least for now, as long as it comes from areas that are responsibly managed and where some sort of risk assessment has been done to see what effect it will have on the wildlife and to keep maintaining whatever monitoring systems they've got going and make improvements as they go. So who knows, maybe in 20 years' time we'll see things very differently. We'll be taking trees from elsewhere, or not taking trees at all, so we'll have solved the energy crisis. If you're listening to this and you've enjoyed the conversation so far, you can find us on social media, and it would really mean a lot to us if you could say hello. And if you really, really like this, you're more than welcome to leave a donation in our coffee fund. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.